We're going to start with our text in John 3, 1 through 13. And we're going to kind of walk through this, and we're going to read it together, and maybe we'll kind of talk through it for just a few minutes, and then we will ponder some of the implications of this text. It is a concept that most believers within this geographical location are going to be familiar with, which is the phrase born again. Most of us already are coming to the text with an assumption of what that means. And that's fine. That assumption, that definition may be accurate and it may be healthy for you. And that is wonderful. I I, I have no intention of wanting to take away from that. But it's also possible that we have such a narrow view that has come out of more of the tradition, uh, the Christian tradition and the formulas of man and not necessarily directly informed by the scripture because there are lots of elements of our faith that have been kind of add-ons throughout the past 2,000 years. And I just want to present to you a possibility that maybe there's a broader way of understanding exactly what Jesus might have meant by that. I'm not saying I'm giving the definitive answer, but there may be a broader way of understanding what Jesus might have meant by that. So having said that, We are going to talk about born again in the context that Jesus talks about it, which he, as you're going to see in just a moment, he is connecting this concept of being born again with the concept of being able to see the kingdom of God. And we, I rarely hear that emphasized. We typically talk about, and if we do it, we we are referring to the kingdom of God as be born again so that you can go to heaven after you die. I do not believe that the scripture, that that's what the scripture says. I don't believe that was the message of Jesus. I can't find it in there. And as I've said before, I am open to the fact that I am limited. And if there is something you're aware of in the scripture that I need to consider, please give me a call. Let's have coffee or a Reuben and let's talk about it. Let me learn from you. But as far as my studies have taken me, it seems that the message of salvation that Jesus brings isn't about primarily the afterlife, but primarily about life in the kingdom of God in this life. So, from the very beginning, I want to say it right now while everyone's with me before you're tempted to drift off and, and maybe miss something I'm saying. Because this always happens. Anywhere from bothered to incensed, people have become with me because what they hear me saying is denying the hope of an afterlife. So I want to say from the top, Artie does believe in an afterlife. If I'm being completely vulnerable and transparent and honest with you, I am trusting Jesus with my life. I am walking as best I can the way of Jesus every day of my life. And I fully suspect to not be complete at the end of this leg of the journey. I fully expect that I will continue to follow Jesus on his way even after my biological system shuts down. I, I believe that with all my heart. In fact, I really believe that there will be a day, and hopefully it's many days from now, and if I am lucky. People who love me will be there. And I will draw my last breath. And a moment later, I will open my eyes and I will be home. 
And I expect I'm going to sit up in bed and say, wow, you will not believe the dream I just had. I met a girl. We had some kids. And we had a magnificent life dripping with the grace of God even in the midst of our suffering. And I will join that great cloud of witnesses that will bear witness to the way the grace of God sustained me on this leg of the journey. So that is my theology of the afterlife. I have my hope set on that. I look forward both to a great reunion and I look forward to waiting for those who are going to come behind me and be reunited with me. Plus, I want to play fetch with a couple of really good dogs. So yes, my theology of heaven works in dogs being there too. But until that day, I don't have to wait to live life in the presence of Jesus. It's almost odd to me to still hear that phrase, I can't wait to be with Jesus. You are with Jesus. And he's with you right now. And it ought to inform the way you think about the purpose of your life and relationships. And it ought to inform the way you think about everything in your life. Because right now, you are living under the authority of the realm of the heavens. Right now, you are living as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And it means you've got work to do to share mercy and justice and peace throughout the world. And you're responsible for the way you steward that mission in your generation and in your brief time that you have on this sojourn called earth and existence, as we understand it right now. And there are people who are laboring under the lie of shame and alienation. And we are called to bear witness to the truth and embody it just as Jesus embodied it in the incarnation in a way that invites them to come and join the party, to come participate in the dance. This is the work that we might call evangelism. But it is not by convincing people what they ought to believe but modeling the life of the kingdom and inviting us, inviting them to join us. So that is my bit there. So I, I feel like I should get to reset my speaker clock because that was just to keep me out of trouble, but nonetheless. So then what might Jesus have been talking about? Well, let's read our text. John 3, 1 through 13. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs unless God were with him. Now, just a moment to pause to talk about Nicodemus. I love this character in the scripture. I know that we talk a lot about the born-again experience, similar in terms of what happened to the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, where a dramatic event happens that totally rearranges his life. But what Nicodemus represents is the fact that this process doesn't have to happen as a one-time crisis event or as a time that you went forward at church camp. It might take weeks, months, and years as we engage in this process because Nicodemus re represents process conversion, which I think comes closer to most of our experiences. And even if you don't think of conversion as a process, but rather as a one-time crisis event, you probably know it still takes years to live into the reality of that experience. So process is an important way to think about our own spiritual growth. And for Nicodemus, John's doing a couple things here. Number one, he's saying that Nicodemus comes at night. 
that probably is to indicate that Nicodemus didn't want his other Pharisees, he didn't want his boys to know he was going to meet with Jesus. So at night is when you do things covert, things that you don't want other people's noses to be in your business. You do those at night. But, but John, throughout his gospel, is going to use the imagery of light and darkness quite a bit. And if you go back to the prologue of John in chapter 1, you'll see that interchange of the metaphors of light and darkness. So I think that John is not just communicating that Nicodemus went in secret, but that Nicodemus, though he is a learned man of religion, is still somewhat in the dark. And he's coming to Jesus to be brought out of that darkness, but it's not a one-time event. Now, what we have hope for Nicodemus is this. The next time we see him is in John chapter 7, which is he is speaking up before his fellow Pharisees, and he's making a defense on behalf of Jesus. And then we see him again at the end of the book of John, and he's with another character named Joseph of Arimathea. And the text explicitly says about Joseph of Arimathea that he followed Christ in secret because he was afraid of the Jews. And I know that we have all kinds of condemnation for those who aren't bold in their faith, but John doesn't really condemn him. He kind of describes him with some understanding. He followed Christ in secret because he was afraid of the Jews, and he had good reason to. Well, Nicodemus is right there with him, almost as though Nicodemus shares the reality of that journey too. And the reason why I think that Nicodemus' story arc is redemptive is that he is there with Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus is the one that brings about 75 pounds worth of spices in order to prepare the body of Christ for burial. So he is clearly there as an act of honor and worship. But it took him some time. Because as we're going to see in this text, it required Nicodemus, who had been discipled and in, in a master of religious thought, that actually there were some things he had to unlearn in order to be open to the revelation that Jesus was bringing. And if you'll look at this, notice, notice very closely in this dialogue, Jesus is infuriating because he doesn't ever answer any of Nicodemus' questions. In fact, he actually agitates the questions with the answers that he gives. Verse 3, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born again when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? You see, Jesus doesn't make it easy. He increases the confusion. And there's a principle to be learned here, especially if you're being patient with someone else on the journey. Spiritual renewal is most meaningful when it's born out of struggle. That's why when the faith is just given to us and it's untested, it really isn't that meaningful. It requires going through a test, and oftentimes that test comes with suffering. The struggle is part of the beauty of spiritual renewal. If you take away the struggle, you lessen the sense of wonder and awe whenever the breakthrough comes. So Jesus doesn't make this easy for him. It's almost like he kind of aggravates the question even more. But there's also another thing that's going on in the text. The, the Christian Standard Bible that we're using has chosen to, to translate this word as born again. Uh, any of you reading a translation that says born anew or uh, born from above? Because some of the translations will say that, and the good Bibles will give you a little footnote and tell you, or this could mean born again, or this could mean born from above, depending on how they translated it. But if you go back to the Greek, the Interlinear Bible, you can go, the, not right now, 
but you can go on your phone and do the Googles, find the Greek and linear Bible, go down to the Greek of this word, and you'll see in the Greek it is translated born from above. But this word can be understood as from above or anew. So there's a little trick that's going on here because what you see in the dialogue is that Nicodemus seems to be being literal, so he's hearing it as born again. Whereas Jesus is pointing to him, this is not born again, this is born from above. So it is as though that Jesus and Nicodemus are, are, are dialoguing in the same language, but they're putting different definitions to it. Again, I think there's a lesson here because Nicodemus is being so literal, he can't see the metaphorical beauty of how the scriptures are communicated. That, that is a different, that's a much bigger conversation for another time. But I do think that it's something that we need to increase our skill in respecting the fact that much of the language of Scripture is not intended to be taken literal, but metaphorical. And when we do, the beauty and the wisdom just expands exponentially whenever we honor that reality. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and of spirit, this is likely saying, okay, I'm acknowledging your literal reality. Born of water is probably talking about physical birth. But then Jesus says, oh, I'm, but I'm talking about something completely different. No, I'm not talking about reentering your mother's womb. Yes, it's good to be born of water, but I'm talking about you've got to be born of water and of spirit. Born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. And whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound. Look at these words right here, the next four words. But you don't know. You don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be, asked Nicodemus. Now, what I love about this is the way it challenges this weird idea that we have that salvation is following some mantra. Like, oh, it's very easy to explain how you get born again. Admit you're a sinner. Believe Jesus rose on the third day and then confess your sins and your desire for a Savior. Let's make it as easy and as clear as possible. That contrasts with the way Jesus approached it. How can this happen? How can I be born again? Ah, it's like the wind. You just really don't know. I can't give you a formula. I can't tell you how it happens. I can tell you you can tell when the wind blows, but where it come from, where it comes from and where it's going, you don't know. When I read this, it completely agitated me and began to really challenge my understanding of formulaic salvation, heaven and hell, Christianity. And it started me on the path to realize I think I've been deceived from what the actual message of Jesus was. I don't think I'm supposed to be offering formulas to bring people over to an ideology. This is something about much, something much deeper and something that I can't control because it's about the work of the Spirit and then having the intuitive eyes to recognize it and cooperate with it. Now, I don't care if your entry point is the sinner's prayer. Good for you. It was mine. That was one of my born-again experiences. But as you're going to see, this is not intended to be a metaphor for a one-time event. So yes, that initiated me in the life of faith, but there have been other much richer 
born-again experiences along the way that have expanded and matured me and allowed me to grow and to increase the life that I could see. And so, and so here, it, it's instructive that Jesus doesn't make this easy. His main answer is, to how can this be, is you don't know. Verse 10. So, so what I'm saying is, is that it, it lessens the pressure. This is not about debating and arguing people into a new way of thinking. It's about acknowledging and celebrating the new birth that the Spirit is doing. So evangelism is being a midwife. That's what it is. You're not creating the life by your formulas and by your preaching. You are a midwife cooperating with what the Spirit is already doing in that person's life. And if we'll learn to be intuitive about that process, you'll find that sharing your faith, witnessing and evangelizing is much more of a natural, intuitive reality that is characterized by peace and joy, not anxiety and debate. Verse 10, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied, truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen but you do not accept our testimony. I have told you about earthly things, and you don't believe. How will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself. So again, this is not a great diagnosis for where Nicodemus is in John chapter 3, but as we'll see, the tone changes from John chapter 3 to John chapter 7 to John chapter 19 as we look at the redemptive arc of Nicodemus's life. So let's, for this morning, for time's sake, let's focus in on two ideas these that are found in these phrases in this passage. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So being born again is about entering into an experience that our eyes are opened and we can see the kingdom of God. That's one. Number two, he also says it again. Unless someone is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So again, this idea of being born again is connected to the experience of entering the kingdom of God. So when we, understand, when we start to think about what it might mean to be born again, we cannot divorce it from its intended fruit, which is not you will fly to heaven guaranteed if you get hit with the bus. It is when that happens... You enter in to the kingdom of God and you see the reign of God and the presence of God in your midst in a way that you did not before. It reminds me of another metaphor that comes from a story of a blind man being held that that famous Christian who was once a slave owner took and owned for himself. I once was blind, but now I see. He's talking about the born-again experience that brings us into grace right now. And then finally in verse 8, Jesus just makes it even simpler with this, the phrase, it means to be born of the Spirit. So born again, or more accurately, born from above, means being born of the Spirit. And the fruit of of being born again or from above of the Spirit is seeing and entering the kingdom of God. So, there's confusion because so many people have been taught to read the phrase kingdom of God as heaven. 
But it is a much larger definition if you look at the scriptures. And let's just limit it to a few places where Jesus talks about it. Mark 1.15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I love this verse. For one thing, the kingdom of God coming near, however you approach that in your own personal theology, I hope that we would agree that it probably doesn't mean something you wait for for another 70 years or so. It means it's right here. It's up close. But the other thing that's that's powerful about this verse that informs what we might understand about this process of being born again is the word repent. Because I've put in there the Greek word and the uh, the lexicon's definition of that word. Repent does not mean remorse for your sins. Now, again... Pastor Artie is not saying you should never have remorse for your sins. I think that you do, but if you have to conjure up that remorse, then you've yet to see the horror of them. Because the truth is, this is a little soapbox, so I can't spend too much time. The dumbest phrase is, I'm living life with no regrets. If you live life with no regrets, then may I humbly suggest you are a fool. I live with my regrets every day, not in, a, not in the way of shame, but they are my friends, and they sit with me, and they offer me a wisdom that I could not attain without their help. Not only should you live with regrets, you should be intimately acquainted with them because they can offer you a wisdom that leads to a better way of living. So, so I do understand that. But what this word simply means is to change one's mind or purpose. Because the truth is, if I show remorse from sin, but I never change the thinking that led me to that in the first place, then I'm just going to be on that evangelical, sad go-round where I feel bad, I say I'm sorry, I punish myself, I wallow in shame, I come out of that, I feel better, I yield to temptation, and I feel a new level of guilt, and I say I'm sorry, and I do, and I do shame, and I, and I do a little better, and then I hit another temptation, I go deeper into the grave. You guys know that sad go-round? It's not very merry. And that's unfortunately how we think about repentance. Now, the reason why Martin Luther said the Christian life is one of it's all one of repentance is we should always, if we're growing, it should be like a snake shedding its skin in order to expand. Our thinking and behaving ought to be continually being renewed in alignment with the truth of the presence of Christ and the presence of the kingdom of God on a daily basis. It should be a regular experience of adjusting our thinking to realign with the truth. Then I get deceived or I get lulled to sleep and I have to wake up and realign to the reality of the truth. This is called growth and maturity. Luke 17. When he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see here or there, for you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of the heavens is already here. It is not a reference to the reward that we get for being good in this life in the afterlife. 
kingdom of God is right here in your midst. And then finally, it's very explicit, and you probably have prayed it hundreds of times. Because in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus makes synonymous the kingdom of God with the will of God. And look at what he says about it in Matthew 6.10. We are are called to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? Where? On earth as it is in heaven. That's this life. That's right here now. We peddle a gospel that is about life after death. Jesus came to bring us life before death. And that can be entered into, joyously entered into, right now. So, the kingdom of God, as I understand it, and I would share with with you for your consideration, is the presence and reign of God. In other words, it's God's will and the fruit of following God's will. So, born from above, or born of the Spirit, is the lifelong experience of increasing our awareness of the presence and reign of God and changing our mind and purpose, which is to say our behavior, as the fruit of that increasing awareness. And you can participate in the increase of that awareness every new day that you open your eyes and your heart is still beating and there's air in your lungs. Born again is a metaphor. It's another biblical metaphor for the experience of being transformed by the renewing of the mind. And it's not the only metaphor, but we do this weird thing where we try to separate the metaphors and see the separate truths that are being communicated. What if Jesus is just created enough to use multiple metaphors to help us understand the same experience? So other metaphors that Christ will use is death and resurrection. That's what it is. And here's the thing. It's very clear in the teachings of Jesus. He doesn't intend death and resurrection to be, con- to, to be considered a one-time crisis event. In fact, in the book of Luke, he's going to say it this way. If you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross, which, again, is not a fancy religious trinket in the context of when Jesus is talking about it. He is talking about a tool of execution. So for us, he might say, if you really want to follow me every day, you've got to mount up on your electric chair. That, that might come a little closer to the shocking thing that he's saying. But does he say you do that one time and everything's great? Is that what he says in Luke? Nope. How often does he say you take up your cross? Daily. So we are daily entering into, if we're mindful of how the Spirit is leading us, we are entering into an invitation to participate in death and resurrection every single day. He'll also refer to it as becoming like a child, or again, taking up the cross daily. I was born again this morning. There's a song I heard, and I think it's probably a secular song, but I've turned it into a prayer to my God. And most days I begin with this on my lips. Eastern sun, melt the cold from my bones, Curtains rise, take the darkness from my eyes, breathing in, pulling life into my lungs like a child. I am born again. That is the beauty of the cyclical nature of this experience. Whatever regret or celebration I thought of in my consciousness as I closed my eyes, the slate is clean and new this morning when I opened them again. That's why the prophet says, God's mercies are 
new every morning. But it wasn't just that. I took a moment where I got up and I went to my favorite part of the house, down to specifically my favorite chair with my favorite blanket draped over it. I started the coffee pot. I grabbed my warm mug. I opened my phone and I hit morning jazz playlist. And as it began to play, I opened up the scripture and once again, unexpectedly, I encountered the word of God. And it did its beautiful work in me of expanding my heart just a little bit more so that there was a little bit more peace, a little bit more mercy, a little bit more love. And I can say with confidence, the man speaking to you this morning isn't even the man who wrote this sermon. He's not the man he was 24 hours ago. He's a new man. He's been born again. He's expanded the experience of the grace and love of God in his own soul. And sometimes there are beautiful moments where you feel like you might burst from it. But other times it's incremental. But it's still the constant invitation of growth, being born again, again, and again. The cycle, death, resurrection, letting go of the old, embracing what is new. And what Paul said a few months, a weeks ago, we looked in the Philippians, letting go of what was behind me and pressing forward to what lies behind me. It's, a cyclic, it's the cyclical reality of life and grace that includes the cycle of death and resurrection. And God has infused his very creation with the reality of this cycle. We experience spring, new growth, the joys of work, but then leisure of summer, the harvest of the fall time when the leaves begin to change and we start to see the first signs of death. But you know what? It's beautiful. In fact, some of us will take a vacation to drive in parts of the country where we can look at the trees and behold the beauty of death because that's what's happening when they change. And then we enter that season. We slow down. We gather closer to the hearth, warm ourselves by the fire, and maybe grieve the death that we're walking through collectively together. But now, if you've lived long enough, you know that that death will not be the final answer because on the heels of that season of winter and death is what? Spring, a new life. I'm already getting ready to make my two new raised beds to add to the ones that we've made, dreaming about the new vegetation that we'll put into the earth and watch God's miracle of growth and fill our bellies with food, nutrition, and if we're lucky, around a table with people we love and laugh with. And this is God's good gift. So we, this reality is woven into the fabric of our existence. It is a picture of what it means to walk with Christ in the way of growth and maturity. It's what Paul calls in the fancy theological term, the process of sanctification. Now, as we get ready to close, here is the thing. If you look at the dialogue with Nicodemus, we cannot escape this reality. Only the Spirit can accomplish this. It is the work of the Spirit alone. It is not our work. Only the Spirit can accomplish this, but we can cooperate much like a midwife cooperates with the miracle of life 
through their assistance. And I'll show you where I see that. Most clearly in Galatians 5, 22 through 25. But the fruit of the Spirit, again, fruit, evidence of life, evidence of the process, going down into the ground, dying, hidden, work going on that you can't see, then all of a sudden a sprout and it grows and it bears fruit. Same kind of analogy, same kind of metaphor. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. There's our death metaphor once again with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We cannot do the Spirit's work, but we can make the choice to keep in step with Him. We can make the choice to keep in step with the Spirit. This is why the strength of our faith is not in increasing the information and making sure we're believing the right ideologies. Ideologies can be helpful in serving the journey, but they are not the point. The point isn't what do you believe, but what do you practice I don't care what you believe about the rapture and heaven, hell, the afterlife, all of these other things. Great, we can have coffee and talk about it, but it means nothing if there's no fruit of the Spirit in our life. That's the point. The fruit that our life is bearing and the practices that we are giving ourselves to. That's why spiritual practice, I I like much better than the word spiritual discipline. Spiritual practice is midwifery. That's what it is. You're a life doula cooperating with the Spirit. It's midwifery. It's keeping in step with the Spirit. It is living by the Spirit. It is becoming increasingly characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. And that is why we give ourselves a spiritual practice to be midwives in our own becoming. And my friend, I hope you're still becoming. I hope that you don't think that what God has for you simply exists in the past. But as that rather cute prophet from the 80s told us, it is a great adventure. And that ought to be our posture as we think about what's coming next. What will your adventure be? God made a poem of your life, but you get to contribute the next verse. What is your verse going to be? Have you thought about it? Because you're invited to participate in keeping in step with the Spirit to compose that next verse. This is why I think one of the most helpful spiritual practice is examination. So let's do it in two minutes. Worship team will come forward. Would you all close your eyes? Like Jamie, I was compelled to honor the place of breath this morning. So let's take a couple of deep breaths. Just fill up your belly and your lungs. Pull that life into your body. Now close your eyes and start with thanksgiving. What are you grateful for? Not just a generic list, but right now in this moment. What are you grateful for? I am grateful for intimate dinners with my wife. I don't know that I've ever mentioned that in my gratitude. 
That's what I feel this morning. So tell your God, thank you. Review. Think about the past 24 hours. Walk through that day like it's a movie in your mind. What stands out? Were there particular emotions or moments? Dark emotions, dark moments? Any consolations, breakthroughs, encouragements? Times when you felt close to God or you noticed Him working? But not just the consolations, what about the desolations? Those times when you kind of felt that God was distant and that you were living less than what He's called you to be. Face your shortcomings of yesterday. Talk with God about what stands out from your day. What might God be telling you through your experiences and feelings? Take some time. Just take a moment and say, God, please forgive me. Forgive me for this attitude. Forgive me for this harsh word. Forgive me to this toxic yielding of the flesh. Any of the times you weren't your best, whatever comes to mind, ask him for forgiveness. And perhaps take a moment to resolve to offer that forgiveness to others that have harmed you. Reflect. Think about tomorrow. Most of us live pretty routine lives. What's your Monday? What are you excited for tomorrow? What are you nervous or anxious about tomorrow? Like a movie, visualize yourself walking through the day with God and simply ask for his help. This is increasing your skill of intuition and awareness as you do this. Then spend a few more moments listening for him, finding peace in his presence. Continue your meditation as we transition to our closing worship song and our time of communion. As you take the elements, maybe express that prayer of repentance. Maybe you express that prayer of request. Maybe you express, express that prayer of gratitude as you feast at the Lord's table. Would you all stand?